Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Welcome back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and with me today, I get to talk with my friend Bob. Bob, welcome to welcome back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. Well, thank you very much indeed. It's glad uh, to be back. Yeah, it's wonderful to, to have you and, and to chat with you. Thank you for making time for me, sir. Can you uh, just catch us up on what's going on in your life, marriage, ministry? What are you working on ministry project-wise? I think we talked back in, in November, so I'm guessing there's uh, quite a bit that's happened in the last three or four months. Right, yes. Yeah, so we've had a couple of books published in that time. Uh, Systematic Theology, which is over a thousand pages, and uh, the second edition of the book on the Trinity, I think, which we're going to discuss today. We are in, I teach here theology in the UK and we've just started our semester so we're rather busy at the moment resuming classes and doing some marking and one or two other things. We're beginning to work on a couple of other projects uh, which will take two or three years to complete. A book on the Holy Spirit and uh, editing a couple of volumes in a new critical edition of the works of John Owen, a great uh, Puritan theologian, 17th century. Well, those sound really great. I'm, I'm, I'm eager to uh, to read those when they come out. I know they'll be really helpful. So thank you for your labors, brother. Sure. Can you uh, tell us about this uh, book, uh, The Holy Trinity in Scripture, History, Theology, and Worship? Uh, why did yeah. you write this, and how do you hope it'll be received? Right. Well, I actually wrote uh, the first edition. It was published back in 2004. So uh, why did I write it? Well, I'd had a long-standing interest in the doctrine of the Trinity, largely because being a Christian, uh, one's faith is in God, and that entails uh, wanting to know God better. I was preacher, pastor, and so consequently, you want your congregation to grow in their knowledge of God. So the question is, who is God? Ultimately, it boils down to this, that the Christian doctrine of God is that he is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God from eternity. And so I concluded that advancing in our knowledge of God, and thus consequently in our Christian life, entails understanding who God is. And I really use the analogy of a man being asked about his wife. Can you tell me something about your wife? And he says, well, I, I, I know she's a woman, and I know she comes, shall we say, from uh, a Philadelphia. But apart from that, I'm, I'm not really interested in knowing anything about her. I just want to know her personally. Now, if you detach knowing the person from knowing about them, uh, I think you have to question whether that man really does love his wife as he claims to do. So that knowing God entails seeking to understand something of what he's revealed himself to be. So therefore I always had that interest and um, I was planning on writing to the publisher with whom I'd um, had a, a smaller work done a year or two earlier suggesting I work on this. And at the very day I was planning to write the letter, a letter came in from the publisher asking me if I wanted to write on it. <laughs> 
It's exactly the same day. <laughs> You're like, Providence, hello. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I said, I, I, I was going to say, I, I really want to write on, on, on the Trinity because it's been absorbing me for 10 years or more. And a letter came through saying, um, someone has suggested to us, and we are really enthusiastic about it, you write a book on the Trinity. So there we are. I wrote it. Um, largely, as I say, because it's right at the heart of the Christian faith. Mm. Um, not only knowing more theology, but in our entire Christian life. And from perspective I was in then, I was senior minister of a Presbyterian church on the East Coast. The effect of your life of the members of your congregation, and so on. And beyond that, of course. So that, that was the reason I wrote it. And it it, it took me the best part of two years to write it, but it, really it was a product of 10, 20, 30 years of thinking and reflection. So uh, so I think that that's that's the, the crucial reason, and it was published back in twenty end of twenty o four, and has been pretty well received, I think. But a lot has happened since that time. Yeah, I, I know that uh, this this we're we're talking today uh, about the the second edition, and I know that I've gotten a lot of questions. Hey, what's what's different about the first edition to the second edition? I can't think of anything better than for the author just to tell tell our listeners yeah. about what's Bye. different. Well, in some ways, nothing has changed because God is the same as he was 15 years ago. Uh, the Bible has not changed. Uh, and the history of debate, certainly up till 2003, when I actually finished the manuscript, that's not changed either. So you can say that, in one sense, there's there's no change. God does not alter himself. And thankfully, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The, what has changed, however, is that people are writing about the Trinity in, in a big time. It's a, a major, been a major growth industry, and there's been a lot of developments. For one thing, the, the big controversy in the Christian church occurred in the 4th century, when there was Arius came on the scene, very similar in some ways to today's Jehovah's Witnesses, though significant differences. He did not believe that Jesus was the eternal son of the Father. He believed he was created. And there's been a lot written on the early church and their discussions. I haven't had to change much on that, but there has been a considerable development in the study of the Fathers and the Trinitarian views back in the 4th century. Another feature in the book was the classification, which was commonplace, of a difference between the doctrine of the Trinity in the Western Church, which is Rome and Protestantism. Uh, We and Rome are um, in the same tradition, have different views on a number of things, but really um, come from the same background. And the doctrine of the Trinity in the Eastern Church, the Greek Church, uh, which today is is orthodoxy, uh, Greek, Russian, and, 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 and various other branches. Since then, uh, there's been the idea that really the, these two views of the Trinity are not that different as has been maintain, uh, maintained before. And there's a large substance of truth to that. I think both we in the West and the Eastern Church Church orthodoxy holds to the doctrine of the Trinity. There is one major difference on uh, whether the Spirit proceeds from the Father or from the Father and the Son. And there are different perspectives on it as well, different ways of approaching it, and very different backgrounds, different culture, different language, different past experiences. And I recognize some of those the, those arguments, but I still think that there is significant difference of perspective between the two. There's been 
discussion, for example, on the interpretation of Bart, which is uh, of interest to scholars of Bart, but also the Trinity too, because it relates to the questions. It sounds very abstruse and very, very uh, remote from daily life, but nevertheless it has significant implications of whether God actually elected, chose to be Trinity, or whether, as has historically been maintained, and I think Bart did as well, that God is the Trinity eternally and then chose for the Son to be incarnate and to save his people. Then there's also discussions, controversy, which arose a few years ago amongst evangelical theologians, ministers, and so forth, on the relation of the Son to the Father. I have an extended chapter on that, um, which takes a whole range of different factors into consideration. Um, It affects the person of Christ, it affects the relationship between time and eternity, uh, but what has become, what was new about that controversy is that you had some people arguing that the, 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 the Son and the Father have distinct or different wills. The Father, there's the will of the Father and the will of the Son, which is a very dangerous thing because if that were so, you'd really in effect have three gods. Uh, it would split the Trinity up and moreover also though it went in, in, in hand with uh, an opposition to the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son from the Father, uh, which was right at the heart of the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, there's not much time to explain that at the moment, but it's simply this, that while there's nothing much we can actually say about the generation of the Son, we'd have to be God to do so. What it does indicate is that God is life itself, brimful with life, and he goes to grant life on a limited, finite level to his creatures. And if he were not the living God, he would not have been able to do that. So the eternal generation of the Son is quite crucial. It stems even into the Gospel. God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only begotten Son, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Uh, so that is a was a two factors whereby two particular evangelical theologians ministers I think stepped over the line as it were. Well, there's a lot of factors in that in that uh, controversy, and I can't go into them now. But there is a very extensive edition there on that point, and many others as well, which um, here and there give different difference of perspective, deepen and strengthen arguments here and. There and elsewhere. Hmm, that's a helpful answer. Um, how does a recovery of the Trinity at the ground level of the Christian life aim, as you say, to help revitalize the life of the Church and its witness in the world? Well, I think in the first place it goes back to what I said at the beginning, that um, God is Trinity. And so as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, we both, Jew and Gentile, in the church, right across the board, whoever we are, we, by the Holy Spirit, through Christ, have access by one Spirit to the Father. So prayer is Trinitarian. It's in Christ, the Son, the Mediator, by the Holy Spirit, and entails access to the Father. So in fact, we are actually, we actually live, work, pray, worship, and are in this kind of Trinitarian atmosphere. Um, it's it's the heartbeat, you could say, of the Christian faith and Christian life. Properly focused and uh, knowledge of the Trinity inevitably heightens, sharpens, focuses our worship of God. And that cannot but spin over into daily life. 
in, in, in the first edition, and I refer to it as well in the second, I refer to an email I received from Sinclair Ferguson, who many of you will no doubt know who he is, saying in reference to John's Gospel and the accounts of the discourse of Jesus in the upper room, he said, when at the, at the most crucial and stressful point in his ministry and in the disciples' experience, Jesus did not give lessons in stress management, but he gave them instruction in the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, this is the kind of almost counterintuitive reality of the gospel, that in fact it is by focusing upon God that we become more like Christ. And if we're more like Christ, we will be more loving, and that in turn will add to the health of the Christian church and to the effectiveness of outreach beyond. So all round, I think you've got benefits of that. Indeed, I recall one author, I think Garrett Dawson, who wrote a book on the ascension of Christ. It was about a few years ago, uh, 15 years actually. It, it was a very, very fine book, but it stemmed from a series of classes he gave in his church. And what he found was that by focusing upon the ascension of Christ, the church, the whole church was revitalized and energized. It, it, it's the counter of that saying, so uh, uh, heavenly minded, you're no earthly use. In fact, you could argue, and I mean, there's a truth to that up to a point, but you could argue that it's by being heavenly minded that we are earthly use. Yeah, we, we definitely uh, definitely get that wrong. Well, if I'm just so heavenly minded, then then I'll just only think about heavenly things, and then yeah. I won't be I won't be uh, any good to anybody else. But actually, mm -hmm. the opposite is true, and I'll prove it. If you're going through a trial, and you know that those trials are hard, yeah. you know uh, what do you want to fill yourself with? Do you want to fill yourself with the latest from Hollywood and those types of things, or do you want to fill your mind with scripture so that you can face those trials and right. the the point becomes pretty obvious you want to fill your mind with scripture so that when you face yeah. those trials and those hard times even those good seasons of life you'll be able to to face them with with scripture yeah yeah well as paul says um, we do not know what to pray for as we ought but in that situation we don't turn to self-help manuals it's the fact that the spirit himself making intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered um, and that Christ is, in, is there at the right hand of the Father uh, sending grace to help us in time of need uh, just at the right time and that's the kind of the linchpin which um, will revitalize energize um, the whole church that's uh, that's really really well said how, how is the Trinity indispensable for the future progress of evangelism and in particular to respond to a militant and resurgent Islam yeah that's a, an incisive question. Well, a knowledge of the Trinity is important because, just on a superficial level, um, we may face questions uh, about it from people who are inquiring and people who are maybe wanting to um, cause some trouble. But that, I think, is a very generalized answer. With Islam in particular, um, which is very much resurgent, as we well know, you know, in some parts you don't see many Muslims around others there's there's a lot particularly in, in the city areas 
uh, Islam is, you could argue, is a, a, a kind of a, a somewhat Christian heresy in the sense that it arose, uh, originally Muhammad lived in Arabia, galvanized the Arab tribes together, which were um, very unstable and disorganized. And it's evident he picked up bits and pieces about Christianity. Uh, I think his uncle was a trader going up and down the trade routes of Egypt to, um, and through to the Fertile Crescent. And so you have garbled, garbled accounts of the Old Testament. Um, you have the idea that Trinity is in fact Allah, God, Jesus, and the Virgin Mary. So he simply got the wrong end of the stick entirely. But in reaction to that, it was the affirmation that Allah is one, one unitary entity. Now, uh, it, it was a form of monotheism, but the point of, is, of course, that if your deity is unitary, it cannot be a god of love, uh, because, as C.S. Lewis pointed out, love exists between two or more persons. Otherwise, it's purely self-love, um, narcissism, uh, and a solitary being cannot be loving and cannot, indeed, for that matter, be personal. So what that says to us right away is that uh, the God who is worshipped in Islam is not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, not the God who revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and in Old and New Testaments, because the Trinity entails the fact that God is loving. He is loving itself and he is personal and so in contrast to a religion which in fact has as a necessary outflow the fact that power exists at the center of the universe and that our responsibility as humans is simply to submit to that power islam that means submission and that will and that power is inherently arbitrary uh, it's fate it's it's fatalism uh, we cannot be involved in process or any process engaged with it, that's the religion of Israel, whereas Christianity says that God is love, and that all his decrees, all his determinations are made by the whole Trinity indivisibly together, and therefore the heart not only of God, but of the universe which he's created, is personhood and is love, that there is a purpose to it which takes us as people right into the very, the very heart. And because God is relational, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three distinct persons, uh, and divine persons, not to be compared with human ones, but one indivisible being, then he is relates to us and we to him. Uh, and that kind of relationality is evident throughout, therefore, the universe, and particularly in, in, in the human race, who he's made uh, to be in relation with himself. So in that sense, knowledge of, of the doctrine of the Trinity, and of course of Islam as well, we need to read the um, Quran, uh, you'll see a massive contrast there to the Bible, massive, and the Hadith, and so on. It needs to be knowledgeable, but it's it's crucial, because that, I think, is really, one, it's the most difficult point of contact. It's one which almost always you find Muslims raise that question about the Trinity. It's one of their main uh, points, and it is the most crucial divide, of course, 
two between uh, uh, Christianity and Islam. Yeah, they they accuse us of, of believing in three gods, yeah, not, right. not one god in, in three essences. Yeah, even even while they even while they, I would say by and large they have a better understanding of, of the biblical languages, but they and they use that. But what I what I've seen is they yeah you 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 carefully walk them through and explain that what what that means. And it's kind of like with, I, I'm going to kind of go around on this. I, I think a lot of the thing, even if you're clear with a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness or even a Muslim, you have to be like super focused and make sure that they are really tracking with you because in their mind, that what we, what we teach us is heresy. In, in our minds, what they teach us is heresy. So we have to be really clear and, and not even, I mean, we have to make an apologetic, of course. Yeah. But I think we have to make the pot more of a positive case would be even more productive I think than just an apologetic I mean I'm not saying that we don't contend for the faith I'm just saying like we just have to set forth the, the best positive case that we have yeah yeah well it is the work of the Holy Spirit to convince people of the truth amen and you can't convince anybody of the doctrine of the Trinity purely by rational argument or even biblical argument of itself we're dependent upon the grace of God and the work of the Spirit I mean what we can do is to give a clear account of what God has revealed if asked for it and if it is appropriate because otherwise it it, um, it will reduce the impact and effect of whatever else we might have to say in that context. Absolutely. I, I, I don't disagree. I think that that's really good. Well, where can people go to find out more about your work online, brother? I'm not sure. I don't um, huh. engage in social media. Um, I don't have too much uh, the chronological time for that to be able to do it. Um, there's books I've written. There's articles. There's, there is stuff there. Union School of Theology has material. And there's sermons I've preached as well uh, in various churches. Yeah, yeah table. I know that you regularly are published at uh, Table Talk magazine, so that would be a good place. Yeah, and then just, I'm sure there's other pl- places yeah. too. So, right. yeah. Well, just as we wrap up this conversation, Bob, uh, do you want to give us a few takeaways? Yes. Well, I think that um, we've really, I think, hit the nail on the head in terms of what I think is probably the most important uh, thing. So, the doctrine of the Trinity should uh, affect our worship very significantly. And I know many of you are in con- churches which don't have a written liturgy, but it, it, it's interesting if you go online and look at uh, historic liturgies which have really expre- you know, expressed worship of large sections of the church, note how the Trinity is at the heart of it. I think particularly of the Book of Common Prayer, which originally the Church of England, the Episcopal Church in the United States has had one too, but the liturgy of Thomas Cranmer in particular, it's all it's it's couched in these Trinitarian terms. Um, the Eastern Church too is a, is a case in point as well, the Greek Church. But some of those prayers there are very useful for you know, for individuals privately because they can express in simple and short terms a whole a whole range of thoughts which um, help us in particular situations. And you'll find that uh, they come 
back again and again to the fact that we worship the Father and the Son with the Holy Spirit in the unity of the God, of God now and forever. So, yeah, I, I would I would recommend attention uh, really being devoted to something like something like that. Now, one can use those kind of prayers privately by oneself, and I found an immense help in that way. I think that's uh, really, really well said, brother. Um, I really enjoyed our, our time together today, and I just want to thank, say thank you for the, the great work that you're doing, um, and uh, pray Christ wishes blessings on you, brother. Well, thank you very much indeed, and you too. Thank you, brother. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.